Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dodgeball Podcast. This episode was actually recorded back in the tail end of December. Um, Lucas had decided to uh, put together a small international uh, men's coaching panel, um, which actually gave way to the idea for the men's and women's uh, Team USA coaches episodes that actually uh, took place or actually were released before this one. But I uh, figured we'd try to go a little bit away from the States. Um, this week and air this episode. So without further ado, uh, please enjoy. So let's, uh, let's dive into this. Um, I'm excited to be here and chatting with you guys. Um, so let's get it kicked off. Uh, I'll start. Uh, my name is Lucas Boyle. I'm uh, based in Seattle, Washington uh, in the United States. And I'm the coach of the U.S. men's uh, dodgeball team. Hey guys, uh, my name is Nico. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm coaching the men's national team here. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Victor Gravilli. I'm based out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I'm the head coach for both men's and women's teams here. Awesome. All right, guys, thanks for joining. It was a, a, like a complex issue scheduling between time zones here, and, but we, we were successful. Uh, we also tried to get uh, Carlos Gunting from Malaysia, but uh, he couldn't make it. So uh, shout out to Carlos. Um, so I think to, for starters, um, I wanted to give folks just a little intro on each of us and uh, to get to know the coaches uh, from the men's division or uh, from our teams in the men's division. So um, I guess uh, to get started, uh, Victor, maybe uh, give us a little, a little bit about yourself. A little bit about me. Well, uh, I'm a pretty, uh, pretty simple guy. Outside of dodgeball, I specialize in the uh, field of communication. So uh, working a lot with our clients, um, putting together some effective communication plans. Obviously, that's had a benefit for me in the coaching side. Um, big sports fanatic. Absolutely love hockey. Uh, can't be more Canadian than that. Um, and I think the Toronto Maple Leafs are the best team on the planet. So what can I say? Uh, how, uh, I have no hockey allegiances, so I, I don't know if you fired any. <laughs> you don't have a team in Seattle yet, but <laughs> you will, you will get that hockey vibe. That's right. That's right. I guess we, we are kind of like soccer rivals, right? Like Seattle and Toronto have clashed. They've, they've had a pretty good rivalry in the last couple of years. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's just dive in a little deeper on you. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got your start in coaching dodgeball. Yeah. So I've been coaching uh, for 11 years in dodgeball. Um, for the past 11 years, uh, I started, I started coaching at Humber college. Um, I started off as an intramural program, but eventually uh, the schools kind of got together and decided to create a little bit of a circuit that was sanctioned by the Ontario collegiate uh, recreation campus of athletics so i've i've been coaching there ever since um there is a gentleman by the name of michael laziak who was a dodgeball player uh, and at the time he was a student at humber and i was a student at humber and uh, he had encouraged me to come out uh, i played for for a couple of sets uh i think everyone thought i was the next big thing but i certainly wasn't uh and decided to sort of take a back seat uh did a lot of scouting a lot of reports um sort of creating some ideas and then uh, eventually Humber was looking for a head coach and I haven't looked back at all. That's awesome. How many, uh, just out of curiosity, how many teams are in that um, league or? 
Yeah, so there's about eight uh, consistent sort of schools here in Ontario that will compete against each other. I typically take the Humber Lakeshore outside of that circuit, and I'll put them in tournaments that are happening across the province. We used to go to the Detroit Cup every year as well. So looking for other opportunities sort of outside of collegiate play to to keep it competitive and and to keep them learning and growing. That is awesome. I'm actually in the process of trying to develop a club team at the local university. And so. Um, and would you have them uh, participate in the um, NC, NCAA? No, or NC- I, currently the uh, college dodgeball in the States plays rubber 8.5. And yeah. Like pinch. And so it's, it's kind of the most hardcore version of dodgeball. It possible. is. So, yeah. <laughs> we used to talk to them um, and we still do keep in touch, but. Uh, the whole format's just so different. It's it's hard for us to even accommodate because um, to, to go throw our team out there who have no experience in it is obviously not something uh, ideal for them. So, yeah, and those guys are they're hardcore, and yeah. I I come from an eight point five rubber dodgeball background, and so I I can appreciate it, but um, I I am definitely kind of taking a shortcut with the the club team that I'm working on and we're starting right at WDBF format. Great. So, awesome. so hopefully we uh, will be able to make some connections with yeah. uh, other colleges that want to play that style. Um, Nico, let's jump over to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe kind of life outside of dodgeball and kind of uh, how you got into coaching. Sure. I started my dodgeball journey in 2012 when um, some of my high school friends decided to find a recreational sport so that we can catch up on a weekly basis. Coincidentally, we were watching the movie Dodgeball and decided, hey, let's find a dodgeball league. In 2013, uh, my friend Abs and I, we were invited to take part in the World Championships in Queenstown, New Zealand, which was very exciting at the time because we were both falling in love with the sport and we were also very competitive. Um, at the time in Australia, we were playing basic rules with 8.5 inch foam balls. So when we got to New Zealand and started playing seven inch balls, they were flying significantly faster. And with WDBF rules, it was um, quite a shock for us. I'll never forget losing to um, USA 29-0 and I think 25-0 to Canada. <laughs> so basically the Australian team got absolutely smashed that year. But we wanted more. And ever since then, dodgeball has pretty much been a significant part of my life. I've traveled to many countries to get balls thrown at me. It's um, a strange addiction. Uh, in 2017, two months before World Championships in Canada, I had a partial tear in my rotator cuff and decided to take a break and come back as a coach in 2019 while nursing the injury to sort of help the team from a different perspective. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Victor, do you have any follow-up questions for Nico before we kind of dive into like the big heady stuff? I do have one, Nico, because I feel, um, how difficult has it been from being, I mean, I mean, you're, you're an elite level player, that's for sure. And a force to be reckoned with. How difficult has that transition been from, you know, being on the court and being the go-to guy to now sort of being on the sidelines and, and getting the most out of your players and, and putting together strategies. Yeah, switching from a player to coaching role has been one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made. But it is a decision that I came to terms with early on into the year. 
Uh, last year we had a, a lot of new faces and I don't regret taking any of their spots because now we have 10 good players with all that world experience that'll come back to Australia and spread that knowledge. Um, you know, those they will play in the state leagues and their skills and, you know, experience will trickle down to the, the social leagues and overall improve Australia's standards. It was much easier to implement and change strategies as a coach, um, especially at Worlds, you know, since you're watching the game unfold from an outside perspective as opposed to being a player where you're just focusing on the game um, or your role in that game. So overall, in that sense, in the, the sense of like tactics and strategies, it was definitely much easier to manage that as a coach. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna follow up on that. Um, now that you're healed, you know, is there kind of, uh, is there this dual interest where you're like, oh, maybe I can do both. Maybe I can be a player instead of a coach. I am interested in playing again. Um, I miss it. So I definitely want to get back on court um, as a player. And now that I've had a taste of coaching, I do understand that it's no easy task uh, being able to do both. However, um, if we manage to get the right systems in place and I have a lot of people helping me out, I think. Well, yeah. I think the world, the world awaits your decision. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think to dive into some of the, the juicy stuff, um, I'm curious to hear how each of you kind of view your role as coach and uh, maybe Vic for you, maybe how that view has changed over time and uh, Nico, maybe based on your experience this past year, um, just kind of what you've learned from that experience and how that's maybe modified uh, how you view that role. Um, Vic? Yeah, I think... It's a good question. I mean, I think, I think my role as coach, I mean, there's the fundamental pieces and then there's the pieces that sort of always will change depending on the teams that I coach and what their specific needs are. But ultimately I think the big thing that I've always viewed my role is um, I think for me, it's, it's, it's trying to get the most out of both the players and the team um, and finding ways to do that. So whether it's mentally or emotionally um, figuring out what those motivators are and, figuring out what sort of support systems are required to get, to get the best out of them. Uh, and then there's obviously the, the tactics and strategies and, and making sure that we get that right so that we're setting up everyone for success and we're complementing as many strengths as possible. Um, so ultimate for me in short, I think it's, it's just getting the best out of the, the player and the teams and um, doing everything that I can to support them on that. That's awesome. Um, and I think for you, I mean, how has that, how has that changed over time based on when you first kind of began coaching and maybe all the way back to your Humber days, but also mm -hmm. kind of like your early days with uh, team Canada. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I mean, going between both, it, it goes from driving a Honda civic to a Ferrari. Um, and so <laughs> how you drive both cars is, is quite different. Um, and so with me, how it's changed a lot, I you know I was fortunate to come in coaching, uh, the boys in 2016 and sort of inherit a core group of guys that have been doing it for a long time. So at that time it was, I believed if we made some small adjustments to our game um, and maximize sort of all the work that they've been doing, we'd be successful. And I was fortunate to experience a gold in my first year coaching uh, team Canada there, but the long, the long, the long-term view as his coach here has been um, is to actually put together a vision um, because we kind of, identified in 2016 that we weren't going to be the best team going to the world championships. 
very soon. Um, you know, we knew that the Americans would, would come back and probably dominate the offensive categories and, and have the access to the depth that we just don't have. And so for us, it's been about putting together a, a long-term plan of how we are going to transform ourselves to be competitive and remain um, relevant. So my role, I think, has changed a lot from when I first came in to sort of let's squeeze the last bit of juice out of this lemon, um, but at the same time putting together a, a real foundation for what the vision of the future was going to hold and obviously putting together a roadmap that's going to get us there. So I think it's changed from much more long-term uh, planning than, than ever before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Nico, talk to us about kind of how you viewed the role as a coach and maybe what you learned this past year. My goal as a coach was to pretty much guide the new players based on my experiences on the world stage, uh, making sure they're mentally and physically prepared for what's to come. What I learned from coaching is that it's extremely exhausting, <laughs> but um, tell us a little bit about how the, uh, the experience of going through it has kind of maybe changed how you would do it if you had the opportunity again, or if you decided to go into it next year. <laughs> um, if I was crazy enough to do it again next year, then there's definitely a lot to work on. Um, I don't have a lot of experience as a coach, so overall I'd have to improve on a lot of things, especially uh, with communication and um, learning to motivate the boys and help them reach their full potential. Yeah, I, that resonates with me for sure. Um, I realized I didn't introduce myself at all, so I guess I'll, 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 I'll take the burden as well in answering these questions. Um, and I'll just, I'll go all the way. Uh, let's see, outside of, I, I owe you guys an intro, so what do I do? Uh, outside of dodgeball, I'm a teacher. I, uh, I teach graphic design at the university. I also teach art and performance arts uh, with at-risk youth in Seattle. Um, favorite activities outside of dodgeball. Uh, I love board games. Um, I love art. Uh, recently, I've gotten into singing sea shanties. <laughs> so like pirates and sailing songs. So like <laughs> once a month, there's a group in Seattle that gets together on a boat and they sing songs together. And so I'm like one of uh, the younger <laughs> members in that group. <laughs> It's very quaint and adorable, uh, but it's very wholesome. You know, it's like nice to spend a couple hours of your day uh, unplugged away from the phones and just kind of like socializing in kind of this old way. It's, it's, it's awesome. Seattle's a weird place and I fit right in. Um, <laughs> dodgeball origin. Uh, I've been playing dodgeball for about 12 years. Um, uh, locally for about 12 years. I've been traveling for tournaments for about nine years. Um, kind of, I've been playing in the elite dodgeball circuit um, for the last four years. Um, that's kind of how I got connected with a lot of the competitive players around the country. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, uh, USA Dodgeball, I think is, is kind of a newer organization as, as, far, as, um, as far as I know when it comes to orgs um, and so last year they had kind of their first 
uh, debut as an organization and uh, I was lucky enough to be one of the players invited to try out um, and they called me and they said, you didn't make the team. <laughs> and I said, oh, crap. And they said, but we'd like to have you coach if you're up for it. And I said, heck yeah, sign me up. And so I had no idea what that meant. And uh, being part of a new organization, um, I think there was a lot of undetermined kind of uh, infrastructure and processes. And so uh, I think I viewed uh, I viewed my role, and I still do, as kind of um, establishing some of those uh, processes and uh, systems um, and kind of um, just collaborating with all of the experienced people that we have uh, as part of the team. Uh, Coach Brett, who's not here in the interview, um, has also you know played forever. I think he's been playing for like 17 years. And so um, I, I see myself as kind of being surrounded by all these resources. And so as a coach, I'm kind of trying to tap into those resources, um, encourage feedback, um, kind of uh, identify weaknesses, enhance strengths. I think Vic, you mentioned that as well as you, Nico. Um, and just kind of uh, slowly build and improve and kind of come up with a system and, uh, and, uh, implement it and tweak as necessary. Um, I think as a designer, I, you kind of throw out a rough, rough draft of your product and you give it to the client and they tell you how crappy it is and then you keep improving it over time. And uh, I think in some respects, that's kind of how I approach the, the coaching and working with the team. It's just always building, always adding on, always looking to perfect. Um, Let's see. I think I think the next place for us to go in our conversation um, would be talking about the process for each of your teams, kind of leading up to the World Championships. Um, so feel free to touch upon anything regarding like the selection process, training periods, training camps, uh, or anything else that kind of went in um, and kind of. Uh, uh, and kind of like what the team narrative was coming into the world. Um, Nico, maybe you can start us off first. Sure. Uh, the selection process we used in 2019 was pretty much the same process we used for 2018. Um, basically, the first stage was um, a state trial. Uh, the second stage was a national camp. And then the third stage was a short list and the final stage was where we had the the core 12 players for the first stage players would apply uh, to be part of the team in their respective states and we'd hold two-day trial events um, at each of the states and it'll be run by the assistant coaches and the coaches and alongside the coaches we'd also have the national selection panel which are um, a group of volunteers with experience um, that have played played in the sport for a long time. They basically scout out at the the events and invite various players to the next stage of the selection process, which is the national camp. Successful players from the state trials are then invited to the national camp, which is the second stage of the selection process. Um, the national camp is held in Canberra at the Australian Institute of Sport. 
and rough, we have roughly 50 players that are invited to the camp from across Australia. And just like the state trials, along with the coaches, assistant coaches, and the national selection panel, we assess the players in fitness, match play, drills, and pretty much invite players to a shortlist, which is the third stage of the selection. The shortlist is the longest phase of the selection process. Um, we train for a few months and then from there the coaches make the final decision and pick the top 12 players from there that will be representing Australia. All right, awesome. so, so once you had kind of the, the, the team selected, what was, what was kind of the training period like? Were you able to get the team together periodically? Uh, you know, like how, how, how was the training once the team was selected? Once the core team was finalized, um, we had seven players from Victoria, four from New South Wales and one from South Australia. Logistically, it was very difficult to get everyone training together frequently because um, the team is spread out across Australia and it would also be very expensive to get everyone together. What we did for the majority of the time was to try and sync up as best as we can with the drills and the strategies and have one or two sessions leading into Worlds where we would all come together and train as a team to develop that on-court chemistry. Uh, Victor, tell us a little bit about um, Team Canada's pre-preparation for Worlds. Yeah, I mean, uh, pre-preparation. Um, so, I mean, what happens is we have a national championship um, where our selection committee is, is present and evaluating players from across the country. Um, then that uh, selection committee builds a squad um, of players. So I think we had about 18 on each side. Um, and we train with that squad throughout the summer. So um, what happens is is uh, our players, a core group of them, obviously reside here in Toronto and, and they'll, they'll, they'll practice weekly. Um, the players that obviously aren't able to practice with us weekly, they're assigned a coach um, who they've established, um, what their benchmarks are going to be, what are the things they're going to work on. Um, and we help support them to find training there. Um, a lot of the training that we also do is off the court. So making sure um, that, every player is responsible for completing a weekly log um, of activities and training activities that are related to uh, getting them ready for worlds on a monthly basis. We meet together at a training camp. It's a two day training camp that happens over the weekend. We spend about six to eight hours in a gym and probably the same amount of time in a classroom doing theory, um, going over um, some of our policies in the beginning and we have an orientation but a lot of it's theory and, and making sure that whatever it is that we're teaching on the court is also got um it's also have some has some theory-based education associated with it um and that's also part of our vision of of transforming players to becoming athletes um, and high performance athletes that are able to compete so we've been under that transformation for about two years now um, so a lot of our, our theory and, and education and, and development is, is really focused on that. So um, just I just want to make sure that I have this right. So once the selection has happened, um, the local players will train weekly mm -hmm. um, and the, the kind of the remote players will uh, check in with their um, coaches mm -hmm. who are close. And then you'll have meet monthly meetup sessions in which the Correct. remote players will come yeah. in 
Yeah, they they usually they'll fly in. Um, it's a Saturday and a Sunday, so um, on a month, uh, at least at minimum every month, we've got all of our squad, um, eighteen and eighteen on both sides together, training in the gym and also in the classroom. How many players were remote uh, on the men's side this year? On the men's side, we had we also would consider um, our our players in Ottawa to be remote as well. So we had about one, two, three, four, four of our our men um, were remote. Got it. Um, uh, I guess this question could go for both of you, but um, Victor, maybe you first is a. Uh, at what point is the um, is the team selection made? Because this year, I think uh, Worlds was in late November, and mm-hmm. so there's kind of a ticking clock on all these uh, organizations yeah, so, after the selection happens. Yeah, so the selection committee um, at nationals is was in April, and it, it's chaired by myself and the national program. So that's when we build our squad. It's up to it's up to myself to decide when those activations will happen. Um, we, this year we decided that we would activate, um, that we, we, we wanted to take 12. Um, we made that decision, I think right in the beginning of end of July, beginning of August, um, to allow the group of 12 to, to sort of accept that they were going to go to worlds and begin their visualization process. Um, so we made that decision, um, a little bit later than we wanted to, as we wanted everyone really just focused on on being the best versions of themselves and, and being ready to go. That's awesome. Uh, Nico, what about for you? How's that timeline? Uh, when, when are players, when, when is the roster set um, versus kind of, uh, t- talk to us about how much time you have in between the roster selection and like the actual competition. We start our selection process roughly late Feb, early March and try to finalize the core team towards the end of July, which gives us about three to four months before Worlds. Uh, we, we also had a few delays in the selection timeline due to the, the sheer scale of the task. Um, I'm sure you understand when I say this, um, it's not easy picking 12 players, especially from a large talent pool. So it took a, a lot of time for the coaches and the selection panel to go through a lot of the footage, um, make sure we watch everyone carefully and making sure that we picked the right players. Uh, due to this, you know, we had a few delays at some of the stages of the selection process. Awesome. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll just add in the US uh, perspective on the men's side. Uh, oh gosh, I think, I think, I think we had, uh, these past few years, we've, we've done a combine where we invite um, kind of the top 40 uh, men's players from around the country and we do the same on the women's side um, so there's scouts in each region and they're just kind of keeping an eye on top players and they're going to local um, events uh, I think the most competitive dodgeball in the states is currently elite dodgeball and so um, however it's it's different ball types so uh, it can sometimes make picking the choosing the uh, participants a little challenging because you're kind of having to forecast like what skills will translate into seven inch foam from uh, whatever ball type people are playing locally. Um, So I think there's, I think the, uh, the combine kind of gives you a little bit of a buffer there where you can uh, kind of cast a wide net. Um, 
So we invite the top 40 players, they come and participate. Um, we'll run them through drills and have them scrimmage. We'll mix people up and have them play with and against um, new players all day just to see, uh, look at chemistry, look at how people respond under pressure. Um, and then uh, the scouts will select uh, 12 players um, from the men's side who will make the team. Last year, we kind of had an alternate uh, system. So we selected, actually, I wasn't part of the selection <laughs> process last year, but um, they, they selected uh, like nine players to the top squad, and then they had six alternate players. This year, we decided that um, we wanted to um, have just one roster and no alternates. So we just selected a base 12. And that process happened, I want to say, in April. So, um, so the 12 were determined in April. And then um, our players were scattered all over the place. And so um, training happened uh, independently. So it was a little pretty challenging to um, main, uh, assure like quality training um, for everybody. But... Um, on the men's side, the players were super dedicated and um, also kind of motivated each other um, as far as uh, fitness and uh, strength training and cardio, as well as uh, sharing kind of like best practices when it comes to uh, foam training. And um, our team has folks who are pretty new to seven inch foam, as well as players who play it, um, you know, have played it for years and play it exclusively. Um, so there was a lot of kind of information sharing that would happen remotely. Um, and then we got together, we had one training camp in Dallas. Um, oh, I want to say about a month before Worlds. Um, and that was our the one time that we got the team together. And we had uh, two days to kind of soak it in and use as much uh, gym time and create as much chemistry as possible. Um, so we did that in Dallas, Texas this year, and um, which is kind of in the center of the country and also is affordable for everyone to fly to. So um, we kind of hunkered down and just did like a, a deep dive on dodgeball that weekend. And really is kind of a, a special time to see the players come together and, and also compete against the best um, at the Combine. Uh, you have top players from all over the country, but when you really distill it down to that top 12, you're seeing kind of a, another level of dodgeball. So just kind of being being there and witnessing that and facilitating that was uh, pretty exciting. Um, okay, now that we've talked about kind of the process and the selection, uh, I thought it might be kind of fun to kind of like maybe see if we can, um, see if we can put our thumb on like, what was your team's narrative? coming into Worlds this year. And that could be based on anything from the training process, the selection process, the training period, or even kind of any um, residual uh, leftovers from last year's tournament. Um, so Vic, maybe you can start off there. Did you, what was kind of the Team Canada narrative on the men's side? Yeah, I think, um, well, we talk a lot about narrative. We talk a lot about sort of what, um, what it is that we're setting ourselves out to do. Um, our narrative in our program has been uh, the return to dominance. Um, we've, we, we, I speak a lot about uh, 
I'm not looking for one gold medal. I'm not looking for a one-off. I'm, I'm looking to return to Canada back to dominance. Um, and I think we're every year we are a contender and we've had, you know, the blessing of, of meddling at every, at every event, but um, we want to make sure that, that the players that are coming into the program and that the teams that we put out there are going to be dominant and they're going to challenge for a gold medal. And I think we're getting really close. I think it's been part of a massive transformation process that starts at home, um, not just in Toronto, but across the country and getting everyone to buy into the fundamentals and the core competencies that are, that are required to be a national player for team Canada. It's, 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 challenge a lot of people to go back and sort of reinvent themselves and recreate themselves. But um, our narrative has, has been and, and will continue to be um, our road back to dominance. Um, and I think that's, that's going to continue for the foreseeable future, at least, at least while I'm still employed. <laughs> I love it. I love it. What about you, Nika? What was the, the men's uh, side narrative for you guys coming into worlds this year? The narrative for 2019 was different for us because in previous years we had a lot of experienced players and the narrative was to always get close to the gold as we can. Um, but for 2019 it was a bit different as we had a fresh team with two returning players so our main focus was to learn and adapt. Um, we knew that there were a lot of strong teams at Wells so the idea was to train as hard as we can and basically see where it takes us. Um, once we got to Worlds, we wanted to absorb as much information, um, bring it back to Australia and help everyone else grow and come back stronger in 2020. It's a scary thought for the rest of us. Um, I guess on the Team USA side, our narrative going into Worlds this year was um, kind of finishing the job. Uh, we fell short in the championship match last year and uh, so in a, in a sense, it felt like any adjustment could be the adjustment that would put us over the top. And so um, it definitely forced us to focus on all the, all the details and on the process and just doing everything in our power to improve and learn and just kind of be a better team and be ready for um, you know, whatever matchups we might see this year at Worlds. Um, and I think, I think kind of like a sub, sub narrative to that as well as um, kind of being the second year of USA Dodgeball's existence is kind of continuing um, to establish USA Dodgeball as kind of uh, the organizing body in the States and also, also represent our dodgeball community on the world stage. Um, I think there's a lot of passionate players in the States and uh, we're still kind of transitioning into uh, seven inch and, uh, but still being able to um, represent and compete. Um, all right. We've talked about all the prep work, everything leading up to the tournament. Let's, uh, let's dive into the tournament itself. Um, so I would love to hear from each of you kind of, maybe some of the highlights, some of the challenges uh, from the event. Um, so as far as highlights, like biggest moments for your team, um, maybe on and off the court, um, and maybe even personally for yourself, and then uh, any uh, challenges that your, your team faced and uh, any challenges that you yourself faced uh, coaching. 
Um, Nico, give us a give us a go. Maybe start us off with some of your your highlights from the event. One of my favorite moments on court was when our youngest player Andy Chow closed a crucial set for us against Hong Kong. I just remember there was pure happiness on court. Both of us just ran at each other and chest bumped. I was very proud because it's the same team that we lost to in our first game of the round robin, and we beat them. Um, in the quarterfinals, and it was just a testament to um, the narrative, which is learn and adapt. Off court, one of the highlights for me is definitely the meet and greet. Just getting to see my international friends and meeting new players was was always exciting, um, especially in that setting, which was you know at the Merritt Hotel in Cancun, overlooking the beach um, with sunset in the background. Um, it was just a beautiful moment. I also enjoyed watching the new players on my team, making new friends and forging bonds that will last for the years to come. It was very wholesome. And uh, what about, uh, Nico, for you, let's talk about challenges as well. Like, uh, what, was a, what was a challenging moment for the team uh, at the event itself? What about for you as coach? I know this is this can be a kind of a tricky question, but were there any moments that you remember as kind of uh, like a particularly difficult um, when it came to coaching? <laughs> to be honest, I felt like the entire tournament was a challenge for the team. But I would say the greatest challenge was for the players to get comfortable and play at their full potential without being crippled by the enormous pressure you face on the world stage. Yeah, as I mentioned before, I'm still relatively inexperienced when it comes to coaching at a national level. And I'm really grateful, however, that I had um, two amazing assistant coaches by my side the whole time. So, Will and James, uh, if you're listening to this, thank you again. Uh, personally, the main challenge for me was making the right decisions at the right time. Uh, there's always a lot of pressure when it comes to making the right call as, you know, one wrong move can cost you the game. Thankfully, Will and James um, helped me wherever possible, and that definitely helped out with the whole process of coaching. Uh, Victor, tell us a little bit about your tournament. Uh, maybe start with highlights, highlights for the team. Highlights for the team. Uh, I mean, there. I mean, I liked what Nico said. I mean, I, I'd be amiss to say that the whole journey isn't, isn't absolutely one to enjoy it's it's both exhausting um as much as it is to uh to to love and enjoy big moments for our team um we had several of them um you know i i think of i think of our match against the malaysians in the round robin and um you know we got to we got to play some of our our 21 year old rookies and and for them to have strong percentages in that match and 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 to to to, to put on a show and to, to show their team and the folks back home that they're ready was, was, was a proud moment. Um, you know, I, I think our bronze medal match, I'm sorry, Nico. I think that's, uh, that's a, it was a proud moment for us. I think one thing that I know to be true about, about the Canadian teams is regardless of how much they're down by, they can still string together a heck of a comeback. And as much as I don't like stringing together comebacks, um, I think I'm, I'm proud of, of the team's ability to make, to follow through and to make the adjustments that we had to, to make to, to get there. So that's another key thing that I, I think about and um, was really, really happy with, with, 
with the whole experience overall and, and those particular moments, um, you know, they, they're touching for me. How about a, how about a moment off the court for you, Vic? Yeah. I mean, for me, um, I've got my hands full of two teams and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. And, um, but for me, it's, uh, anytime I, I really, I'm not, I'm not the big socializer. Everyone knows that I don't go to the after parties and I'm probably not the most approachable guy depending on my mood, but, um, I love every moment I get to have one-on-one with a player. Um, you know, we got a guy like Jeff Snow, who's just been around for so long and I've got so much respect for Jeff and um, I hope the feeling's mutual, but, uh, anytime I get to just sit down with them in the morning and, and Jeff and I've kind of got this routine going at worlds where, you know, we have breakfast in the morning and, and we have dinner at night and um, not even just talking dodgeball, just sort of hanging out and, and being able to even sit in silence. I've, I really, really have come to enjoy those moments with, with a, with a veteran like Jeff or sitting poolside with one of our rookies and keeping our feet in the water and talking about what they've learned that day and how they're feeling and how they plan to approach tomorrow. And, you know, just, just getting to see their excitement at 11 o'clock at night when they should probably be in bed, but they can't. So, uh, you know, I, I love all of those interactions with the players on a one-to-one level. That's awesome. Uh, talk to us a little bit about challenges for team Canada. What was, what was maybe the biggest challenge that the team faced? Yeah. Uh, and then also a tough moment challenge for you personally as a coach. I think uh, as a team, you know, losing losing Moody 48 hours before the event wasn't uh, wasn't ideal for us. Um, Moody's obviously an, an elite level player who's who's a part of uh, our big picture. So losing him 48 hours in advance was was definitely a challenge. Um, we've we continue to do a lot of work to rebuild ourselves as players. Um, so when we come to an event like this and um, you know, I, I, we weren't able to use the floor the way that we would have typically used a floor. Um, and that really hindered, I think, 36 weeks of training for us mm. where we had done a lot on the floor and how do we use that advantage and how do we take the momentum that the floor gives us? So it, it definitely affected our brand, but we're not the only country that it affects. So, you know, adapt or die. Um, that was a challenge for us. Um, and I think there's uh, the overall challenge of our, of our opponents. Um, I've got a tremendous response. And it, it, it goes across the board. I think Great Britain proved me right. They got better throughout the event. And um, I think they're going to be a real force of a country in, in, in the coming, uh, coming months and years. I never look Great. forward to a, Yeah, I, I, I never look forward to a date with the Australians. Um, I, since I've coached the men's team, I've lost every single time in the round robin to them. Um, and this year, d- despite the new faces on that team, I was going to expect the same level of grit from that Australian team and the same level of discipline. Um, they just, they just really don't let you breathe. Um, and then you've got the big bad wolves called the Americans, um, and sort of the plethora of talent that they have at their disposal. And regardless of player one to six on the court, they just, they've got these offensive abilities to pull themselves out of any situation whether they're playing down two players or three players so there's multiple challenges um and we've we faced all of them at some point um and so what doesn't kill you makes you stronger uh and so we'll look to come back in 2020 and and hopefully put on a better performance um any any moments that stand out for you personally moments that you think back upon as just kind of tough coaching moment? I mean, 
I'm fortunate where I've done this for a while. So I, I, it's, I, I reflect back and you, I, I think I'm my toughest critic, right? I think every time, you know, players look and evaluate footage and they see what's happening on the court and I spend a whole footage review session going that and then I pause and I stare at myself and try to figure out, remind myself where I was at mentally in that situation. And so um, there's a lot of decisions I'm happy with. There are other things that I go back and do differently. Absolutely. I've got a fabulous assistant this year. He came on board, uh, Nikisha, and she always reminds me, you can't play it for them. Um, and I think as a coach, you always have to remind yourself of that. If everyone always thinks that it's easy, especially in the sport that we're in that's so raw, that coaching is as simple as telling someone what to do, and, 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 and it's like going to be this most incredible thing. And coaching is not about telling someone what to do and just expect it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that aspect. Coaching both teams um, – it's been unsustainable for a long time. I think there's a level of exhaustion that I've never experienced. I knew after 2018, uh, my days of coaching both teams was coming to a close. Uh, 2019, I, I still stuck with it. Um, as much as it's difficult to leave one team, the truth of the matter is, Lucas, you, you talked about in the beginning, my role's also been building this foundation of our program um, and building these processes and building um, – what our competencies are going to be and, and building two really established programs and having the consistency across our men's and women's is extremely important for us in Canada to make sure that one program isn't getting more than the other. So the only reason I'm really around for both is, is to bring that level of consistency and, and to bring that hard work across both programs from a personal level. Um, it hasn't been sustainable. I, I don't believe I'm at my best um, at a world championship. I think coaching five consecutive matches at 40 minutes apiece you know, losing one semifinal, you, you kind of have to brush it off right away and go to your next semifinal. And I don't have the energy or time to be watching the footage that I think other people are. And I don't have the time to rest. And it's, it's not easy, um, but I'm doing it for a much bigger cause. And my hope is that sooner rather than later, we will have a, a dedicated coaching staff for one program. And that's going to allow me to be at my best at all times. Um, and so it's hard leaving a world championship sometimes when you do feel like you're not at your best because of those factors. But I will close and say it's an absolute privilege to have the opportunity to coach both teams and the players and the coaching staff and the management team have, have done a remarkable job doing everything they can to, to help me be prepared for it. Um, but as you boys know, it's probably exhausting just coaching one. So uh, I will look forward to the day where, where I can say that as well. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I think, I think we've got a bullet point on that later, but I'm glad you, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because it's, uh, it, it's so draining just, just for one team. So um, I can imagine, I can't imagine what it's like to be in charge of two. Um, I, I'll share, I'll share kind of the team USA side of things for the event itself. Um, highlights, biggest moment for our team. Uh, I think when we look back on the event, the tournament, the biggest moment, or probably it was the round robin match against Australia. Um, I think uh, it was our first hardcore match, I think. Um, and we, we, I think a lot of us look at that match as a loss. Like we came out with the results, but as far as the coaches were concerned, um, as far as the players were concerned, like it felt like a loss. Like, um, you know, we felt like Australia played better than we did. And, uh, uh, and 
you know, like we got out of there on the skin of our teeth with a leg catch in, in at the end of, of the 40 minute match. And that was the difference. And, uh, you know, you can't, you can't bank on that. <laughs> that, that can't be part of the, the sustainable foundation of a successful uh, program. So that was, that was definitely the highlight of, of uh, our week was that match and coming through there. Um, and then I think there's, there's like other small moments that come to mind. Um, I think like getting getting to see different players shine in different uh different matches like Jeff Juvinko coming in to the championship match and just having his best match of the week uh it's that's just so special to watch and to get to see all the work and training that guys have put in and have it present itself um i think another highlight for me it was uh uh, watching players play through kind of slumps and come out of the come out of the other end of the tunnel and get back on top and show show everyone why they're there and why they belong there. Um, favorite moment off the court uh, for for us we this is a very new experience like we we didn't have transportation set up until like a few days before someone realized like. How are we going to get to the venue? Uh, so last minute we were scrambling and we got a shuttle bus and that shuttle ride became just kind of part of my favorite part of the day was riding to the venue with the team and riding home with the team. And, you know, depending on the events of the day, that ride had different tones and it had different levels of focus. But there was one night where we came home and we were singing together and we rolled the windows down and everyone on the street could hear the team singing. And uh, that was just special. And, you know, I'll, I'll never think of uh, uh, the daylight comes and you want to go home song again. <laughs> That'll always be like the dodgeball song to me. Um, let's see. Challenges. Challenges. Uh, I think challenges for our team. Uh, there, was, there was quite a bit. I think, I think, negotiating rest that that was such a new concept for me and the team and uh, I think last year we had no idea what we were doing and we just burned through players and we we saw like quite a few injuries and so this year um, finding scheduling rest days making sure that the team was well rested and made it to Sunday at peak performance that was that was a big a big thing for us and and like being honest with all the players and saying like, Hey, this is, this is our goal. And, you know, I, I know you want to play Australia, but we have to, we're going to shut you down all day and you're going to miss that match. And, and that, that was really hard for players uh, to know that these matchups they'd been looking forward to for a year and kind of these faces they'd been thinking about as they've been motivating themselves. Uh, they weren't going to be able to face off against um, so that I think scheduling rest was a big challenge for us. Logistics in general, I think our program is still new, and so just kind of like just some management stuff, some infrastructure stuff. Like it was all just kind of a, a work in progress, and we were just kind of dealing with things as they're coming instead of being uh, prepared for them. Um, other challenges, I think, for especially for me as a coach. Uh, uh, Nico, you touched on it, but just kind of 
being able to step in and kind of negotiate momentum and uh, call timeouts at uh, appropriate times and uh, and also being able to make adjustments, call in the substitutions, um, just supporting the team during kind of match play as well as possible from the coaching position. Uh, we, <laughs> I, I'll share this with you guys. You guys will love this. We, in our match against Hong Kong, we had a 1v1 and it was Mike McGee against uh, the last Hong Kong player and they're kind of going back and forth and things were getting a little loose and like there was a play where Mike threw both of his balls and was retreating without a ball and like everyone on the sideline is panicking and we're like oh my god this is getting out of hand and we had two timeouts to use and so there's like whispers everyone's whispering timeout 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 and we finally were like let's call it and we like rush to the midline and call a timeout as Mike is throwing and hits a foot shot on the strong <laughs> player. And uh, the timeout happened right before. And so there was kind of this like, like amazing celebration that was about to happen. And then kind of this big letdown realizing that the timeout had been called and we're all kind of, you know, it was giggling a little bit. We ended up losing one V one. Oh my God. And so, uh, and so Mike, Mike told us, He's like, don't ever, ever call a timeout on me again. And he was so upset. And, uh, you know, that, those are the moments that uh, you'll never forget. You can and laugh it, about it now. <laughs> and, you know, all's well that ends well. But if, if that had been like a deciding moment in the tournament, you know, I don't know if we would ever be able to forgive ourselves for that one. Um, okay, we've talked about highlights, challenges for each of us. Let's talk about... Um, Takeaways, takeaways from the event. Um, there's a week long, you're, you're battling, you're representing your country. Um, you know, ultimately it ends with a 40 minute match. And uh, sometimes the, your final result is sweet and sometimes it's sour. And a lot of times the recency bias uh, is gonna color the way you uh, think about the tournament in general. But uh, where were the takeaways for you? Let's start with uh, Team Canada, Vic. Our takeaways. Um, our takeaways are, I mean, there's a lot. Um, and post-Worlds is, is real. And I experienced the post-Worlds slump pretty hard. So I'm still in my sort of evaluating phase and analyzing phase. But a couple of key things uh, stand out for me. I think the first one being um, we're a top three team. We are. Um, we got a top three offense and a top three defense, and it got us third. So in order for us to be successful at this event, um, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take us playing at our best. I might take our, for our opponents to not be at their best. It's going to take a little bit of luck. Um, so for us, it's, it's about how do we continue to close that gap and sort of accept the reality that we're currently in, um, but not necessarily, you know, rolling over. Um, that's a big one for me. Um, second takeaway from a sport development perspective, we need to really, really, as much as our players, everyone's going back and adopting high performance programs and we're investing a lot there, but we really need to be investing a lot on the officiating side. Um, because the way that, and, and not, not, not a, not a shot at the officials. I thought they did a great job, but the point that I'm trying to make is as we continue to build better players, we need to continue to build better officiating and building folks that are going to govern. Um, and so that's a huge takeaway for me because 
as someone who's looking at the sport holistically, it's, we can, we can dump as much as we want in players, but if we're not dumping the same amount of effort and resources and officials and coaches and uh, conveners, we're, we're not going to have a product that we're going to walk away happy with. Um, and so that's a big one for me from a sport perspective. Uh, and a takeaway from, uh, for me as, 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 a, as, a, as a coach um, coming back to Canada, it's, um, you know, my message to the folks that are going to be trying out is, is keep working hard. Um, let's, 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 let's stay true to the brand that we want to build for, for ourselves and let's keep focusing on those fundamentals. And everyone always has this thing where they come back from worlds and they look at what all the other countries are doing and they immediately want to stop doing what they're doing and, and start implementing and adopting that. But uh, it's about having a, an authentic brand and something that's, that's genuine to what we're capable of doing. So I think I want everyone to stay really focused to what that authentic brand is and, and building themselves to, to, to sort of be that. So those are the three takeaways for me. What about for you, Nico? Takeaways from the event this year? Uh, the takeaways of 2019 is basically learning what we did differently to the top, top three teams and what we can do to close the gap. For example, USA have always shown depth and skill, especially when it comes to offense. So that's one of our long-term goals in Australia, which is improve our throwing mechanics and eventually increase the average velocity of the team. Malaysia have always had um, such fluid and dynamic teamwork. It's almost like a hive mind. And we constantly work towards getting to that level of team chemistry. And I think Canada is like a mix of both USA and Malaysia, where you got players throwing at ridiculous speeds and moving with ninja-like agility. So basically, there's a lot to be done, um, a lot of catching up to do, but we'll definitely learn from our mistakes, um, train hard, and come back stronger in 2020. So I yeah, I totally get it. Uh, gosh, I feel like I didn't do my homework. Um, I let me, I'll I'll jump in and take a. You didn't do the homework on your own assignment. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a teacher failure 101. Uh, <laughs> First the timeout, now this. Jeez. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I'll go off the cuff. Let's see how it goes. Uh, takeaways for Team USA. Uh, I think top takeaway is just kind of knowing knowing that we could do it. Like like finishing finishing with the gold and. Uh, coming in with uncertainty and, you know, uh, anxiety and confidence, but doubt and a little bit of everything, you know, like, like coming in, losing in sudden death the previous year, just kind of, it was pretty shaking and uh, to come in and be able to finish the job and be confident and be dominant. Um, it, it was, uh, it was definitely a confidence booster um, I am, I'm always, uh, I'm always fearing for the worst and preparing for the worst and, and giving my opponent, uh, the benefit of the doubt and maybe not even giving our team the benefit of the doubt. I'm always looking at things glass half empty in terms of preparation. Um, it's not the most healthy mindset, but I think coming away with the gold, um, was just kind of reassurance that we're on the right path. Um, we're we're doing the right things and let's continue to build. 
Um, I think uh, another takeaway for, for Team USA is um, let's, let's learn from our mistakes. Let's continue to build um, specifically with regards to logistics, um, the combine selection team process. I think there's a lot of work that can be done there. Um, our training camp this year was head and shoulders better than our training camp last year. And yet it still felt um, kind of last minute. And so just kind of um, doing a little more planning, doing a little more um, preparation on the organization side of things to streamline it for our players and um, make sure that uh, we're coming in as prepared as we can be uh, is a big takeaway for us. Um, and then I think, I think a final takeaway is just, I think when the dust settles on a, an event like that, um, <laughs> I mean, I'll, uh, how do I want to say this? I think there's a lot of um, competitive juices in that space. And uh, I know Vic, you and I connected right on the first day and then we never quite had a, an opportunity to connect again. And I think part of that is because we were so locked in to what we're doing and um, in the preparation, but you know, there's there's a lot on the line. And uh, I think when the dust settles, you're finally able to kind of step back and see that we're all playing this very niche, small growing sport. And that, um, you know, even though we're opponents in the tournament, um, in the greater scheme of things, we're all, we're all kind of on the same team working to grow this sport. And, take it to the next level and kind of share it with the world and and a championship only means as much as the competition right like it doesn't mean much if you're if you're winning a tournament and um you know uh your opponents are not supported or your opponents don't have the same resources and whatever the case may be and so i think i think we all benefit by supporting each other and it definitely brings more glory to the game um, so that I think was my final takeaway. Um, great, we've made it through the formal <laughs> part of our discussion. <laughs> um, I kind of wanted to open it up to just some general questions and uh, crosstalk. And uh, I wrote down some questions for each of you guys, but uh, maybe um, I'll let you guys kind of start by asking question maybe to the group and we can each take turns answering um, does anyone have a question for the other coaches? I've got a question for you. Yeah. Um, so you go to Worlds in 2018, your first time coaching there, and um, you walk out with the silver. So what, how did you approach this one differently? What are, what are the conscious decisions that you made to, to learn, to improve, to grow? Um, and what did you do differently? Um, I think 2018 was tricky because I, I'm a dodgeball player. Um, I'm active. And to be kind of this new kind of like power dynamic um, was very like uncertain. And um, I remember uh, after an elite dodgeball tournament, we had like a, a good chunk of the Team USA players there. And we decided let's have a pickup game the next day for the Team USA players. And I remember at the end of that day, 
we were all standing in a group and it was a very new um, experience. And I remember telling the team like, hey guys, like I have no idea what this means to be a coach. I'm just, I'm thrilled to be a part of this and I wanna support this team in whatever way possible. So, you know, um, let's let's do this together. And uh, if you have any ideas, let me know. And, and I, I think that kind of like symbolized kind of the uncertainty that I had and kind of the imposter syndrome that I live with on a daily basis. So I think this year and working with Coach Brett um, last year and this year um, gave me a lot more confidence in myself as coach and um, distinguishing my role um, as coach and not as a peer, but as kind of this other uh, other role for the players. And so that that made things a lot more um, streamlined and direct. And uh, I think everything else was just kind of like building on what we did last year. And and like last year we had kind of a game plan for a lot of teams and this year it was like really emphasizing that game plan and leaning into it and exaggerating it at times and seeing seeing how that uh lended itself to results so um, i think we are a little more extreme with kind of some of the team strategy this year which was exciting to see it pay off um but i will i will uh I will take the question ball and I'm gonna throw it back at you, Victor. Um, I think you mentioned it earlier, but just, I, I lost sleep. I was like a zombie out there <laughs> and I was only coaching one team. Like how the heck can you be involved with two teams in a, at an event like the world championships? Yeah, this is the same it's, question I had for Victor as well. It's, uh, I'm not gonna lie, it's, um... It's extremely difficult to coach two teams. Um, it's, it's, it's not sustainable. I remember Devram asked me this question a couple of years ago when uh, he was doing it for Australia. And uh, it's not easy. Um, it's, it's from the emotional aspect, the preparation aspect. Are you rested? Are you at your best? Um, I, I'm doing it, I'm doing it um, for a higher purpose. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's to be more of the architect for both programs. Again, I, I have to give a huge shout out, Beth, Nikisha, Greg, uh, Megan, Kate, just being out there and just being a massive support to me um, and doing everything they can to make sure that the teams are prepared, ready to go on the bus, uh, in bed, eating, uh, pulling together stats and just doing everything they can to make sure that, my, uh, that I was set up for success. Um, but it's, it's very hard. You know, you know, you look at the boys and they lost a semi and they won their bronze, but the women lost the semis and their bronze. So, you know, it's one of those days where you walk out and you're like, well, I'm one for four. Um, and it is difficult. Um, it is difficult. And, you know, I, I think the love back home is sometimes a little bit critical and hard and, and they think that you can be a lot better and they expect you to be a lot better. And they question a lot of the things that are happening. And um, it isn't, it isn't easy. Um, but I, I do see it as a blessing. I, I do hope five, 10 years from now, I'll be able to look back and go, I'm so fortunate that I, I not only was the men's head coach, but I'm the, I'm the women's head coach. And I'm so fortunate that I got to do this. Um, but it, it, it's difficult. And I think, um, I have to sort of coach myself at times, especially coming back from an event and reminding myself that everyone did their best and you did your best and you can't help, but sometimes always feel that you're shouldering the blame a little bit. And, 
Um, you know, you, you question if, if, if you were at a, in a better position, could, could you have done more? And that's definitely, if I've learned anything in 11 years, as soon as you start going down that spiral, you got to stop. Um, you got to stop right away. So um, I'm going to stop and I'm going to, I'm going to look at the positives and I'm going to stay focused on where we have to go. But I'm glad that you two at least acknowledge that it's not easy because uh, it's, it's definitely not. Uh, Nico, do you have a, a burning question or, or anything you'd like to either one of us to answer? Um, I, I would for Nico when he's ready. <laughs> um, so my, my question is more for organizational one. Um, how do you guys raise funds or if you do um, for two teams flying up uh, I guess uh, also to pay for accommodation um, and all that. How do you subsidize your your national programs? Um, so for us um, in Canada, we are self-funded. Um, so as much as we go after sponsors and and we've we've had the backing of of some great sponsors in the last couple of years, um, we we still we still find that to be difficult. I think from an organizational perspective, walking in and, and asking for money for a cause is one thing, but um, I think organizations really need to to adopt the business mindset of well, and 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 that's part of the trickle down effect, right? Like we need to have the information of how many people are tuning into the live stream and what are the demographics and what did you know who who's who's participating and who's following this and what does the membership look like like that that's just stuff that we just don't have available yet um and it's why we need to be all rowing in the same direction so we go after sponsors and, and we're able to get a little bit which is great um and the rest is fundraising initiatives um that the players um put on uh and the support of our provincial sporting organizations um our pso's hosting fundraisers to offset those costs but um, I think when I look at the final price tag of what it costs to be a national team player this year, um, 90% of it was fun, was, was raised through fundraising and 10% of it was at the support of our sponsorship. That's kind of our model right now. It's, it's also not sustainable. Yeah. Um, I think, I think my answer is very similar to Vic's in that, um, I think that's the next step for dodgeball and, uh, for kind of national organizations is to kind of learn how to um, emphasize the interest and passion um, and, and just how to quantify that and share that with sponsors to uh, let them know that this is something worthwhile and in, in investing in. Um, I think I think a couple players might have hosted like fundraise events around the country. I know I, I did in Seattle just to get my myself out to these events. But um, I think a lot of the guys, uh, a lot of the guys who was just out of pocket and um, I know, I know actually current and past players that like the money is like a, a prohibiting factor. They, um, you know, like it's so significant. I've heard stories of guys still paying off debt from traveling to worlds from years ago. Um, and so I think, I think there's a lot of room for growth there. And hopefully I think um, there is work being done there, but hopefully that, that knowledge can be shared between um, 
organizations because as as we said earlier you know the greater this event is um, the bet we all benefit from it and so if we can share tips and advice um, uh, i think that's that's fantastic stuff and i know that uh, usa dodgeball um, had some success uh, getting a couple sponsors this year and so um, and i know that they've started looking at like their membership base numbers and uh, social media impressions. And so it seems like they've got some of the um, recipe figured out. And uh, I, I encourage anyone to reach out to Jake Mason and uh, poke him for those, for those goodies so that everybody can kind of get on the same level and share, um, share knowledge. Nico, I have a question for you. Um, so my question for you, uh, it wasn't all that so there's a couple of things. So as a player, you're very cool, calm, and collected. You could be up by six or down by six, and I still see the same Nico, um, which is a compliment. Um, and it wasn't all that surprising to me to see that demeanor carry over to the coaching side. Um, so my question for you, um, is this net your natural character, or are there, are there things that you're doing deliberately to sort of keep you um, in that state of mind um, because you're, you're a calming presence as I think both as a teammate, as well as a coach. So what, uh, what's the secret there, Nico? And it's not because I'm looking to change. I'm just asking for whoever's <laughs> listening. I think I'm naturally calm looking and I emphasize on the looking part because on the inside, I assure you that's unfortunately not the case. Um, However, I do actively try to maintain a calm demeanor, especially as a coach. So thanks for noticing, Victor. All right, I've got a, I've got a question for Victor. Um, I feel like one of, the, uh, one of the common conversations had at Worlds this year was about the Canadian jerseys. <laughs> oh Jesus! Tell me what what uh, what did you, you guys what? won't let off on these damn jerseys? So, listen, <laughs> I'll be real. All right. Um. So our our theme for the year, from a marketing perspective, was bold as we can, which was quite punny. Um. We've got uh, our, our management team has done a phenomenal job with our branding and marketing efforts, from uh, content creation and all of that. So to stay true to the brand. Um, we really wanted to be very take Canada to a much edgier place. I think historically, when people think of Canadians and think of Canada, they you know they think of the beaver and they think of the polar bear and they think of the red and white. Um, but we've really wanted to be bold. Um, and so when when I was consulted by the management team that this was the direction we wanted to go in, um, as we looked to sort of entering our new our next chapters of our existence, um, I thought it was an excellent time to sort of. Um, to be bold and, and to change your color scheme up a little bit. Um, even, even the games that it plays as a coach, right? Sometimes there's a lot of stuff that we're, we're trying to do that is also new to me to deploy as a coach. And it's very easy, as, as you boys know, you know, you walk in with this game plan and you have these ideas, but when it's 4-4, it's very easy to go back to sort of just what you're comfortable with. It might go against what your plan was, but we naturally want to go back into something that's comfortable. And so for me, having the players in a different look and feel was, um, was all, it was, is equally as a tool for me to remind myself of the Team Canada that I'm trying to coach um, and to deploy the systems and tactics that we want to be doing. 
um, versus when I look at them in their, their traditional threads, it's very easy to go, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get Jeff to do what Jeff would typically have done three years ago because that's what we usually do. Um, so it was a little bit of a tool for me um, as much as it was about our brand. Um, a sneak peek, I think we might be going back to uh, our national look and feel for 2020. Um, so uh, the critics can rest. PMZ uh, can 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 stop running the headlines about the the pink of our boys. Um, but that is the history of our jerseys, and I am proud that we got to be one of the storylines for better or for worse at this year's championship. Although I think I think sales on our jerseys are an all time high right now. So, um, you know. Take that, TMZ. Yes, yes. You know, I have to admit, Vic, I I was actually trying to trade for one of the pink and white round. Yeah, you see, jerseys. it's iconic. So. It will be one of those jerseys that you'll look back in time and go, <laughs> man, remember when Canada wore pink in Mexico? <laughs> I, and I'd I, like to remind everyone it's a coral, not a pink. Um, I think my management team would like me to correct the record. Coral, Pantone color of the year, right? Exactly. On trend. <laughs> uh, anyone have any other questions they'd like to throw out there? Uh, yes, I, yeah, go ahead. You go, Nico. I already asked my question. I noticed in some of the promo videos, which were awesome, by the way, um, you were doing some work with Team Canada in classrooms. And what I wanted to ask was, how much do you think the theory uh, translates into practice? It's, it's translate, you know, it is translating. We, we ran our first ever exam. Uh, we had a 62 question exam um, that we did um, that was broken up into two parts. So where it's really helping is that we're all speaking the same language. So I'm going to speak one language and um, it's up to the players to sort of understand what that is. So what are our definitions? What's our glossary of terms? And when we're talking about the three zones on the court, the defensive zone, the neutral zone, the offensive zone, do we understand what those are? Do we understand the competencies that are being played in those zones? So the theory is translating well. I, I will say one thing. I, I think our dodgeball IQ is skyrocketed in our national program. I think our players are a lot smarter. Our dodgeball IQ has been focused on a, on a team effort. I think the next level for that is the individual one-on-one -on -one effort um, and getting to know our play, the players in front of us a little bit better. Um, but it has translated very well from uh, core competencies, foundational skills, tactics, gameplay. We're talking the same language. So when I say a sentence, everybody knows exactly what I'm saying. And it's not, it, I'm not hearing the whispering anymore between um, you know, player one talking to player two and being like, oh, yeah, 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 you, you probably missed that. When Vic says this, what he actually means is this. Um, we've really tried to eliminate that. Um, and so the theory has been huge for us there um, from a dodgeball IQ perspective, and, and it's something we'll, we'll look to continue. And everyone passed the exam with flying colors. I should probably say that as well. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I love that. Um, another question for Vic. Vic, I, I feel like you... You and Coach Masro, Brittany Masro from the U.S. Women's Team, stand out to me as some of the most involved coaches. Um, mm. it, you guys seem like even more than uh, an average coach. You seem like you're an extension of the team on the sideline. Um, what what kind of what kind of things are you doing from the sideline and communicating to the team? Is it is it kind of uh, macro, big picture stuff? Is it small things like play calling? Is it Yep. Scouting. I, I just tell so us a little bit about that. 
Uh, for me, it's both. Um, as much as I'd like to get myself out of the, uh, the micro stuff, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hands-on, you know, this is when we're going to throw, like I'm going to whisper a play in someone's ear or get them to release when I say now, because I've identified something from their opponent's perspective. Um, I've always been a pretty involved coach. I think a lot of people have always commented on my pacing. Um, and the truth is it's something that I, I think I naturally just do to, I, I, as a trying to be the seventh member on the court. Um, but a lot of it is uh, strategic gameplay, quick adjustments, uh, tips, what, what we're looking for, um, calling some plays from the sideline. Uh, I've been quite involved, but I will be honest. Um, I do a lot of this and I, and I have for the last couple of years, but I hope to get to a place where I'm able to do a little bit less of it. Um, and I think that's the next step in our evolution and development, which is now that we're all talking the same language and we all, we understand what the vision is, can getting our players to, to be in a place where they can start driving a lot of that on their own. And I'm more focused on macro, um, making adjustments, um, focusing on making sure the right personnel is on the court, um, at the right time in the right place. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's if if I was mic'd up, you'd you'd, you'd hear it all. Um, but, that would be uh, awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely a little bit of both, and it's a lot of fun, which is why it's draining to do both teams. Um, I wanted to share a behind-the-scenes story with you guys, and I wanted to invite you to kind of share a behind-the-scenes story if you feel like uh, appropriate, but. Uh, <laughs> So we stayed at one of the tournament resorts at the Marriott and, and uh, we were looking for space to do like video sessions and coach Brett uh, is, he's like a detective. And so he was going around and checking doors, trying to find his way into uh, like conference rooms. We, I think we asked for permission at one point and they said no. And so we took matters into our own hands and Brett, Brett calls me and, we planned a video session uh, for the next day and he calls me, he says, I have a space. And I was like, okay. And he's like, meet me at, you know, 10 AM. And he says, meet me at room 1104. And, uh, and I'm assuming that this is going to be like his room. And what I learned was that 1104 was the temporary bathroom of, oh my God. of the Marriott. And so I know this room. <laughs> I think I, I think I peed there in the welcome uh, event, but continue. So, uh, so the Marriott lobby was under construction, and so the restrooms are under construction. So, if you needed to use the restrooms and you were on the base floor, uh, the only place to go was these these temporary restrooms, which were just hotel rooms that were unlocked. And so, Coach Brett had found this space and like realized, hey, we can use the television in this room. And so, oh, so we That's met awesome. in there and we invited, we, we brought all the players into this temporary bathroom. And so we've got 14 guys huddled in the dark in this temporary restroom. And every once in a while, someone would open the door and they'd be like, hey, can we use the bathroom? And we'd be like, yeah, go ahead. And <laughs> we would just usher them in there. Meanwhile, we're talking about, you know, like, this most secretive dodgeball <laughs> material on on earth and we're like you know like we feel like we're we're like doing all this uh, covert stuff in public and in in the rest that's of amazing I, I don't know i i think there's something like emblematic or about that <laughs> and, 
speaks to kind of where we are as a sport still. Yeah. <laughs> Something beautiful about it too. Uh, any behind the scenes stories you guys would like to share? Mine would be a quick one. I think, um, so we were on uh, day three and I was absolutely gassed. So if you actually ever go in my track suit, if you look at the left pocket, it's, it's filled with Advil. Uh, and the right pocket is uh, filled with gum. Um, so usually by the end of the day, the Advil pocket's almost empty. Um, and so I think we were coaching, I was coaching women's. It was a Canada versus Australia. Um, and I was exhausted. Um, we were playing the Aussies and, and we were down and, and we were chipping away and coming back in the round robin. And I forget her name and Nico, you might remember, but, uh, she, I wasn't, I was, I was in the middle of watching one of our players and she hits me right in the face <laughs> yeah. and just right. blasts me. Um, and I've, I mean, I've been hit a couple with balls a couple of times, but this one was a hard one. And I think just the level of exhaustion. And so my ears yeah. start ringing. I start seeing stars. Um, and if you look at the live stream, you can actually see me struggling. And at first, you know, you put your hand up and everyone's laughing. Of course, I'm like, everyone loves this. Um, Vic just got hit. This is the best thing. In the world. And then uh, I look across and I see the Canadian boys laughing. Um, and, I, and I, was, I literally felt like I was about to pass out. And if you look back at the live stream, I actually leave and I go behind the netting because I'm like, this is about to happen and I don't want anyone to see it. Um, and, Matt, and, and Matthew Silvera just kind of mouths like, oh, like it hit your shoulder. And I was like, no, it hit my face. <laughs> He's like, what? It hit your face? And I remember staring at it. I was like, oh, finally, like a, someone's concerned. And then he just burst out laughing even more. Uh, <laughs> And in that moment, I think I had a, my ears were ringing for at least three hours afterwards, but, uh, it looked cool to all you guys, but, uh, it hurt. It hurt. Yeah. It hurt all night. Yeah. I think that was, uh, Tara's cover up. It that was. was she had, she, and she had apologized profusely. She was quite lovely, uh, yeah. afterwards, but I vowed to commit that next time I'm going to catch that ball right off my face. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What about you, Nico? Uh, no, I, I don't think I have any behind-the-scenes uh, stories to compare to that. Um, I think Wells is pretty pretty uneventful in that sense. I was basically at the venue, came back, went to my room, watched the footage. That's pretty much what I did for the whole five days. <laughs> totally, totally understandable. Well, I feel like uh, I want to touch on one last little category before we head off. And... I wanted to start by asking this question to both of you. Um, what advice would you give to players back home who are aspiring to be on the national team in the future? Victor, you want to go first? So. Uh, that's a good question. What advice? I mean, I give a lot of advice. I mean, if I was speaking specifically to, to my group of Canadians, um, the one thing I think I, I, I tell the athletes to aspire to be is, um, you know, strive, focus less, focus less on all the narratives and focus less on all the prestige that you think that comes with being a national player and be really honest with yourself of, do you have the time to commit? Um, and are you, are you in the business of being the best version of yourself and being the best as you can absolutely be? Um, a lot of players, you know, they're excited. They want to get their kit. They want to be in the program and they think there's this level of prestige and there really isn't. 
what, what awaits you is a lot of hard work and a lot of commitment and a lot of sacrifice from a timing perspective and a financial perspective. We really do expect a lot from our players. Um, so my, my, my message to them is always, do you want this? And if you do, are you willing to put the work and this level of sacrifice involved in it? Um, and you look at our veterans like Jeff Snow and Jason Mergler and guys like Rannikin, like, you know, like these guys have been along around a long time, but there's been a lot of sacrifice on their part. I mean, I look at Jeff and I think he had his best world championship to date this year. Um, and, you know, at 37, he's still working really hard and he's still doing everything he can to be the best that he can be. It's not that he just shows up and throws with both arms and calls it a day. Um, he works extremely hard. So my message to them is, um, you know, don't, don't waste your time and don't waste mine if you're not in the business of working hard and making sacrifice because that's, that's where we're at right now. Well said. What about you, Nico? What advice would you give to aspiring players? I believe Victor summed it up beautifully. Um, if I was to add anything to that, I would like to remind all aspiring dodgeball athletes to look after your shoulders, um, learn about your shoulders and understand how it works. Do the prehab, because in the long run, all that knowledge and effort will ensure that you have a long and sustainable career. I like it. Um, I think the advice I would give to players who are looking to make the U.S. national team in the future, the men's side anyways, is, uh, I, Vic, you, you put it so well, but it's just the sacrifice. I mean, the players who made the team this year were head and shoulders the hardest working players. Um, they were also so committed. Um, you know, a lot of time, a lot of money goes into this, and sometimes that means that you're not going to play. You know, you're going <laughs> to, these guys have been training all year, every, you know, every day for some of them. And they get to the tournament and we're going to do what's best for the team. And these guys have bought into that. And that means that some of them aren't going to get to play in the biggest moments of this tournament because they agree that this is what's best for the team. Or, you know, maybe they don't agree, but they choose the team over themselves. And like, it's that level of commitment. It's, uh, it's just the work ethic throughout the year, putting in the time when, you know, they get home from a tough day of work, you know, going to the gym and putting in a tough day at the gym as well. And um, always grinding, always making those improvements because as we've seen, you know, these matches can turn on a dime and it, it takes, you know, it can be one great play that turns a whole match around. And so uh, that one great play is sometimes the culmination of thousands of hours of, of training and work. Uh, so, yeah, I would just echo, Vic, what you said is just sacrifice, work, uh, commitment. Um, let's see if I can think of anything new to add to the advice for the young play, younger aspiring national team players. Uh, consistency consistency under pressure and that kind of touches on your point nico is um you know a lot of our dodgeball in the states has back walls you know you can throw hard and miss people and the ball comes back to you and you get another shot at it um uh in on at worlds wdbf there's nets it's all about accuracy it's all about uh, hitting your spots and continuing to do so for five days <laughs> 
you know, it's a marathon and uh, I'll just say it, you know, like Team USA, we played the players who were hot at the end, you know, like if you weren't hot, if you weren't hitting, you didn't, you didn't get in in the game in the crunch time. Uh, so just learning how to do what you do best under the most pressure possible uh, is, is so huge. And that's something I think that we're going to kind of institute and evaluate at uh, training camp this year. Uh, all that's right, awesome. guys. It's good stuff. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think to finish this off, let's, let's, uh, Let's see, how can, how can we make this dodgeball community a better place for future dodgeballers? Uh, we've got a lot of experience, a lot of, uh, a lot of knowledge about the game and the sport and what it takes to kind of uh, bring, it, bring it along. Uh, how, can we, how can we as a community, uh, maybe from uh, a player point of view, as well as maybe organizationally and maybe even just as a representative of the sport, um, yeah. make this a better place for future players. Uh, Vic, you want to start us off? Yeah. The final question here, uh, how can we make this a better place? So I've got, I've got two answers. Um, my first one from, um, from one thing that we all need to remember is we as a sport, we're not there yet. And I don't think any established sport ever thinks they're there yet. So we have to roll up our sleeves. We have to be a part of the solution. We have to make this, the sacrifices to, to make this a better sport for everyone and, and invest in curriculums and, and to really be thinking about the infrastructure that's involved to be successful. Um, I think that's a big one as players. I think the big thing to remember is um, um, the integrity component and the honesty component. It, it seems to be a narrative that is only getting worse at these championships. Um, we've, and it's, it's the only way we're going to fix that. Um, is by establishing sort of what that integrity piece looks like and making sure that we're all following it um, as our as our officiating sort of uh, curriculum and competencies catch up to where we are right now um, it's up to our players to be playing a clean game and to making sure that it's enjoyable for everyone um, and on the same time making sure that we're expressing ourselves in an appropriate manner um, you know I we're so quick to call people cheaters right away. And, and, and we always want to give the benefit of the doubt to people that they didn't feel it or they didn't know, um, or that those, exp those expressions of enthusiasm were not meant to be um, antagonizing, but we have to do a better job as, as athletes, as teams, as coaches, to put it all into perspective, to challenge us to be better, but actually provoke ourselves to be better versions of ourselves rather than quickly sort of brush each other off give each other the finger and tell us to mind our own business. So I think we have a lot of work to do in that way. Um, I think it's that narrative is unfortunately only getting worse. Um, and it seems to be the, the narrative that's getting the most attention at the end of these um, tournaments. So we need to make sure that we come back better. Um, and I'd, I'd be more than glad to sort of work with all of our federations. And I think all of us as coaches actually need to be playing a leading role in how do we implement that sort of culture on our teams and, and, and become the lead ambassadors of what does that look like um, and doing our due diligence to make sure that um, when we get into those moments, there's sort of that code that we can look at each other and be like, no, no, this is, this is how we carry ourselves. This is how we're going to approach this. Let's move on. 
and not turn to our officials to have to do all of that governance for us. And that's my note. That's my Oprah rant here. That's awesome. What about you, Nico? How can we make uh, the dodgeball community a better place for future players? I believe there are two areas you can work on to improve the dodgeball community. The first is at an individual level. Be the change you want to see. Wherever you play, show respect to the opposition, hold yourself at the highest level of integrity and sportsmanship. People notice these things and they see the difference and they learn. So promote good and positive culture. The second is at a community and organizational level. Dodgeball is still in its infancy and it's going to take everyone to help grow the sport. Um, a lot of the people who organize your national and international events are volunteers. So be thankful, appreciate what they do and help when you can. Together we can ensure a bright future for the sport we all love. Yeah, I, I echo all of those sentiments. I think uh, things that I'd like to add kind of to our um, call to action for everyone listening out there is uh, I, think, uh, I think giving thanks to all the volunteers that it takes to make us a, a do-it-yourself kind of sport like dodgeball happen. Uh, you know, as we've mentioned many times in this podcast, you know, it's still a, a new sport. It's a growing sport. Um, everyone from referees to organizers to um, event staff, it just, it takes so many people to make an event like Worlds happen. And, and even, uh, even dodgeball on a local level, make leagues happen. Like league organizers are not compensated hard <laughs> enough. Uh, you know, like tournament organizers, they're just there's from top to bottom there's just so many people who give so much to the game and uh i think that's just really important to show show our thanks to them and just keep fueling them to do what they love doing and what they've been doing because they're they're not an infinite resource uh and most often they're receiving criticism and if that's all they hear at some point they're gonna just say you know what I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to actually have fun in my free time and not continue to give my, my time away to a community that, um, you know, doesn't appreciate it. So make sure they know they're appreciated. Um, the other thing I want to say is that uh, <clears throat> I, I believe that top players have the, the power um, to create community locally. Um, I think uh, and and I guess I guess what I mean there is uh, supporting rec opportunities. Um, I think a lot of top players, um, I think, sometimes have kind of the bigger picture, but sometimes are focused solely on their own journey, and on their own growth and development. And I've heard from players around the country that have a hard time integrating with local leagues because they're not on their level. And part of that is. You know, part of that is, it's true, like, you're, maybe you're not going to be able to do your training at the rec league locally, but what you are going to be able to do is you're going to be able to teach your expertise, you're going to be able to teach the love of the game, you're going to be able to create community, make friends, um, and uh, hopefully create a pathway to competitive dodgeball for some of those rec players and uh, rec communities. Um, so that that's a challenge I have for uh, for all those top players out there. Like, start start locally. Like, generate the interest in this sport in your region, and uh, 
and get get people involved. Um, all right, guys, I think we made it. That's a, a nice juicy two hour, two plus hour conversation about dodgeball coaching. Um, unless anyone has anything else to say, I want to say thank you to both of you. And uh, I just want to say thank you to you for uh, for having us here and, and hosting us and asking some really great questions, guys. Thanks, guys. Appreciate us um, doing all this. Um, hopefully, uh, it'll be good to hear Carlos's responses as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Definitely, and uh, I'd I'd love to uh, I'd love to make kind of a coach's conversation more of a regular occurrence and uh, our own coach's that. corner. Now that yeah. Don Sherry's out of it, it's uh, it's up to us to fill his spot. That's right. Oh, okay, guys. Thank you so much. Um, and let's let's end the pod there. Alrighty, so Lucas, thank you so much, man, for for being willing to uh, take it upon yourself to put these uh, panels together and kind of just give us a different perspective of dodgeball. Um, really enjoyed listening to you um, and and Brett talking uh, Team USA, and and which gave way to to Kelly and Brittany's uh, perspective as well. And then hearing the international side, um, at least from Australia and the Canadian perspective, has been pretty awesome. Definitely appreciated hearing uh, Team USA being referred to as the Big Bad Wolf. So that was awesome. But um, I'm, I'm really grateful that, um, you know, Lucas and Justin and Amanda have, have guest hosted. Um, I do hope that this is something that continues as this uh, season um, continues. I mean, it's it's only June, but it feels like it, feels like it should be the end of the year already. But um, yeah, so as always, um, if you have an episode idea, if you want to uh, take a shot at guest hosting, if you have a panel or um topic that you'd like to discuss um now is a great time i mean we're kind of just we're not playing dodgeball so we might as well continue talking about dodgeball in any facet that we can so anyway if you're still listening uh thank you much for doing so have a great uh rest of your evening a great rest of your week a great weekend and we'll see you soon Awesome. Okay, glad. I'm glad you can make it. Um, I've never, I've never done recorded one of these before, so um, this will kind of be a learning experience for me. But um, I'm planning on recording the audio from this, and okay. hopefully that's something that we can share in like a podcast format. But you know, if all of that goes shit, this should be something that uh, <laughs> all of us just enjoy and uh, can just. Uh, maybe um, have for our own sake. Yeah, for sure.